Welcome to the New Day Community Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you're encouraged by this message from the Kalamazoo, Michigan campus. For more info on the church, visit newdaycommunity.org. Thank you. Good morning. How's everybody doing? So good to, to see you all here bright and early. Wasn't that fun? It was fun doing baptisms. That, that was exciting. It's not my first rodeo. Done it in Vandalia. No big whoop. But uh, yeah, it was, uh, that was awesome. I just, it was exciting because those three kids, um, these young people, right? I, I taught uh, in various Sunday school classes and it's just awesome seeing them grow up and, and kind of take this big step, you know, as, as they follow Jesus, they give their lives to him. It's just, it was just awesome to be uh, a part of that. So, Good morning. Um, today we are going to start our series on First Peter, and I really believe that it's going to be a, an important and powerful series. There's a, there's a lot in this short letter uh, that we can apply into our lives right now, today. And I just want to start by saying that I think one of the amazing things about the Bible... Right, is that it was written in history. It was written to a specific person or specific people in the case of this letter. And it was written for a specific purpose. And if we kind of step into this, if we can learn to understand what was the author's original intent, you know, how was the, the content of this letter understood by those original recipients? And, and if we can understand that, if we can kind of learn that historical cultural context, we can really more accurately step into it and learn to apply it into our own lives today. And so, Today is going to be this kind of grand overview. Grand makes it sound impressive. It's going to be a big, broad overview of the, the context of, of this letter. And we're going to look at who wrote it. We're going to look at when it was written, what was happening during the time it was written, and why it was written. Then we're going to look at how we can apply the, the themes of, of the book into our lives today. And I think that it is going to help us as we press into this series over the next seven weeks or so, it'll, when we understand the context, it's going to help us to apply it. Um, and so as we look, as we read through this letter, we see that it's a letter of hope. It is really a letter of, of encouragement written to a community of believers that are undergoing suffering, they're undergoing persecution, and it is a letter that is intending um, to encourage the hearers to stand strong and to live holy and faithful lives in the face of this suffering. And what I want to do is to kind of give us a handle on this, to kind of give us a, a current look, a current vision of, you know, to help us to put ourselves into the, the shoes or the, the sandals, as it were, of these first, thank you, this first, that's actually in my notes, um, this first, this first century uh, people. And so I want to look at a popular movie that can help us to understand the story of hope. See, I'm not a one-trick pony. See, this is totally different. So we want to look at the story of the X-Men. All right? Anybody familiar with the X-Men? There's some that will admit it. Good, good, good. I, I don't know. I'm going to teach this in Vandalia next week. I'm not sure I'm going to get the same response. So maybe, 
I might have to come up with something different. But the X-Men, what do we know about the X-Men? These people were outcasts, right? As we, as we watch the movie or you read the comic books, the, the X-Men are mutants, right? They are different. They are outcasts. The, the society at large, the normal people that don't have superpowers, they don't trust the X-Men. They hate the X-Men. They want to lock them up or kill them or get rid of them, right? We, they're outcasts. But the X-Men, thanks to Professor Xavier, are saved out of the world, right? Professor Xavier has this awesome superpower where he puts on this weird helmet, rolls into this big orb-like room, and he, he finds mutants all over the globe, right? And so when he, when he identifies a, a mutant, he, he says, hey, guys, go get them. <laughs> <laughs> It's more dramatic. In the movie, they do it really well. But he, said, he, sends out, he sends them out, right? He's like, go, go get those guys. And so the, the X-Men, they, they go and they, they save this poor, oppressed mutant that is maybe getting beat up at high school or is kind of you know, getting taken advantage of or doesn't know how they fit and they feel like they're all alone and they are hopeless and they are brought back to Professor Xavier's School for Gifted Youngsters, right? And in this place, being saved out of this world where it seems that they don't belong, they find a home, and they find friendship, and they find acceptance, and they find love. I might be reading a little bit into that movie, but in a sense, right? <laughs> they, they find this place where they belong. These people who were once hopeless and stranded out there on their own, just trying to get through life, they are now brought into relationships, into friendship, into family, into community. And then these X-Men, after they are trained up, they are sent back out into the world to help other mutants, right? And they're sent back into the world not just to help these other mutants, but they're sent to protect the world from bad guys. They're sent to protect the same people that would like to throw them in prison, that would like to kill them, get rid of them, that don't trust them, to hate them. The X-Men protect those people as well. Well, that's pretty good, Mark. That's, that's, thank you. That's way. I really wanted Star Wars to fit. I just thought this was better. So I'm sorry. I really. I, uh, anyway, right. And so, so as we look into the context of the of this letter of first century um, Asia Minor, we are going to just think about like the the people that Peter was writing to are kind of like these mutants, kind of like these outcasts. And the X-Men. All right. So, all right. So put that, stick a pin in that. Put that over here. Okay, X-Men. We're going to hold on to that. That's really interesting, Mark. Good job. But let's jump into the historical context. Who wrote first Peter? Any ideas? That was Peter. Yeah, good job. So we see in verse, uh, chapter 1-1, one, one, it says, uh, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And this was Peter, who we first met in Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 and 19. It says, As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew, and they were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. So we see a couple of dudes just fishing on, on the lake. Jesus comes by and says, Hey, throw down your nets, come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Right? And so... 
Peter becomes one of the original 12 disciples. He is one of the uh, original 12 that followed Jesus around for three years. They, he listened to his teachings. He watched him heal people. He watched him feed 5,000 people from one kid's lunch, right? And so he saw firsthand all of this amazing things that Jesus was doing. And not only was Peter one of the twelve, he's really, he seems to be in kind of the top three, for a lack of a better word. He seems to be kind of the, in, in this kind of the top echelon of disciples. We see this because Jesus, throughout the Gospels, would periodically say, hey, James and John and Peter, why don't you come with me and we're going to go do this thing. And I don't know how that would make the other disciples feel. It feels like they'd be kind of like, all right, well, I guess we'll just hang out here with, with uh, these other guys. I can't think, I literally can't think of another disciple's name right now. That's stress. <laughs> I'm going to stay here with this guy. And, and so, that's bad. <laughs> that's really bad. All right, I'll make a note of that for second service. <laughs> All right, so, so we don't know how those guys felt, but Peter would often go off with James and John and Jesus. We see this, uh, that Jesus invited them up onto the, the Mount of Transfiguration, right? And so this would have probably been a highlight. It's just the four of them and, you know, and Jesus is glorified and the Father speaks, and this would have been amazing. Right? And Peter was also invited with James and John into, to pray with Jesus on the, in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was betrayed. And so all the disciples went up, went into the garden. He said, all right, let's pray. James, John, and Peter, let's go over here and we're going to, just the four of us are going to pray. And again, you're kind of like, Thomas is like, got one. Uh, Thomas is like, mm, what's up? Well, I guess we'll just pray here with these guys. Second, second, second tier disciples, whatever, no big whoop. So there are no second tier disciples. That's not biblical. All right, so he is, he is a disciple. And Peter, we remember the story that he walked on water, right? We saw him, he steps out of the boat. He walked on water with Jesus for a little bit before he kind of started sinking and, and Jesus raises him up. That must have been awesome too, the same Peter. All right? Same Peter that says, Jesus, even if everybody else turns away, I will always follow you. And shortly later, he denies Jesus three times. It's a heartbreaking story that, that when, when Peter does this and denies Jesus. But, good news, P Jesus, uh, according to the scriptures, you know, he um, came back and he spoke to Peter one-on-one. -on -one. After his resurrection, he came and he talked to Peter, and then publicly he reinstated Peter as this disciple, right? And on the day of Pentecost, we see Peter transformed into this bold proclaimer that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He, he proclaims it to the very people who had crucified Jesus just a few weeks earlier, and who just a little bit before he was hiding from in this room because he was afraid that they were going to come get him and the other guys next, right? And so we see Peter... Uh, after Pentecost, he goes on missionary journeys and he takes the, the gospel out uh, of Jerusalem. And then we see him play an incredibly 
pivotal role in the foundation of the early church there in Jerusalem. And so this Peter, this Peter that spent three years uh, with Jesus and then kind of uh, was part of the birthing of the the first century church there after the, the day of Pentecost, this is the man who wrote this letter that we're going to be reading. And so this history gives him this apostolic authority to speak truth, right? And so when Peter speaks, we are going to listen. And so that gives this, this letter a lot of weight, a lot of authority, and that is why it was included in the biblical canon. All right. So, so we know who wrote it. It was Peter, the apostle. Great. But who was he writing to? And we see uh, in 1.1, again, it, Peter is writing to God's elect scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And for some reason, my PowerPoint kind of shrunk, so the map is a little bit difficult to see. But these uh, provinces are are Roman provinces, and they uh, are located within Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And so some of the people that went on the Turkey trip a few years ago would have traveled around in this same area where this letter was circulated, probably by Silas, carried it around. And one commentary said that these, the the order of these would have been the order that Silas would have taken, taken the letters as he went to, from church to church, um, reading it at their gatherings. And so he sends it to God's elect, scattered throughout the provinces. And this um, exiles that are scattered is actually very significant to our understanding of this uh, first century letter. All right, and so we know that he's writing to Christians. It says that he writes to God's elect, so Christians. Um, but these people are also, they're exiles who are scattered. All right, and so these are people who are not locals in this place where they are living. All right, they very well might have been uh, believers. Um, and we think because of how the, how the, how Peter talks to the recipients, that they're probably mostly Gentiles um, that he was writing to. Um, for different reasons, uh, he, call, he says uh, somewhere in there, he says, you who w- once were not a people are now the people of God. Right? So he's writing to people that he says, you know, and it, the way he kind of um, talks about some of the Jewish customs and, the, and how uh, Jewish uh, things work, he's, it seems that he's trying to kind of help them to, to understand kind of the, this Jewishness of the, the gospel, for lack of a better word. All right, and so Peter is writing to these Gentiles, these exiles, all right, and so they may have been in Jerusalem, and after, um, we see throughout the, the book of Acts that at various times, the Jewish people would start persecuting the Christians. We saw, we see Paul and, or Saul and some of his friends, right, they're persecuting Christians, and so the Christians from Jerusalem at various times kind of scattered out, right, and we call this the diaspora or the, the dispersion, all right, and so these Christians leave Palestine, they leave Jerusalem, and they kind of go all over the, the known world. And some of these people landed up here in modern-day Turkey. Let me find my place here. All right, and so they're exiles scattered, and this term um, 
kind of refers to the idea, or in other translation, that they were foreigners, or they were aliens, right? So these people did not belong, right? They didn't have a place in the social structure where they were living. And there is a a commentarian that I read that said that this... um, Exiles scattered, their you know, resident aliens, refers as much to their social situation as to their spiritual situation. So sure, they were, they were certainly persecuted, they were personally suffering because they were Christians, but even outside of their spiritual circumstances, they were socially kind of in this weird limbo place. All right? And the the Roman Empire at this time would, would say that they kind of lived in this place that they're a little bit better than slaves, but definitely below citizens. All right? And so um, these people were uh, disenfranchised workers that were laboring in the cracks of a network that largely excluded them. Right? And so it was a difficult place for them. They're socially marginalized. And in this place where they're living, they had all these restrictions. Uh, they were restricted with who they could marry. They were restricted on how much land they could hold or what kind of property they were allowed to own. They were not allowed to vote. They were not allowed uh, to be part of any civic associations. Which doesn't seem that bad, but it's probably... Probably not good. They were higher tax. They had, they had to pay more taxes than the citizens and the other people. And when they got in trouble, they were more severely punished than everybody else. See, these guys, they were, um, they were constantly exposed to um, the, uh, like the locals, the people that lived there. They feared them. They looked at them with suspicion. They were slandered. They were discriminated against. Um, and it was just difficult And so we see that the people that Peter is writing to are, in a sense, they're homeless. They are marginalized, they're disenfranchised, they don't belong, they don't fit in, and they're looked at with suspicion, right? They don't have a place in society. Those are the people that Peter is writing to. Thank you. They were set apart. I did that. Did that. (laughs) Sorry. All right, so we know who they were, who Peter was writing to, but when was it written? We know that it, if Peter wrote it, if Peter the Apostle wrote it, it had to be before 64 or 65 AD, because this was the time frame when Peter was martyred by Emperor Nero, or in the time of Emperor Nero. And we're going to talk about him in a minute. And we can see that throughout the letter, it is... Uh, Peter is certainly responding to some persecution or suffering that is happening in the church. And we can kind of understand this because the Greek word that is translated suffer or suffering or suffered is used over 18 times throughout the book. And this is in addition to, at the the beginning of the book, it talks about enduring trials, right? And in the end of the book, he talks about, don't be surprised by the fiery ordeal that you are enduring, right? And so the book is peppered throughout with this discussion of suffering, and you're suffering, and don't worry, it's going to be okay. So there's a persecution happening. And so because we know when Peter was martyred, because we know that there were... 
discussing and talking about persecution in these Roman provinces, we decide that the, the letter was probably written sometime between 62 and 65 AD, near the beginning of the Christian persecution under Emperor Nero. This feel like history class yet? Okay. All right. So, so we think that there's a, that Nero. Well, we don't think we know that Nero is a pretty bad dude, and that this letter is written into the beginning time of this persecution. All right. And so I just want to give you an idea of who um, Nero was and what these Christians were enduring during this time, or at least beginning to endure during this time. And just after this, there was a Roman historian um, named Tacitus. And I'm going to read you something that Tacitus wrote. So, everybody's moving to the edge of their seat. They can't wait. What could it be? What was Tacitus talking about? So, Tacitus says this. Hence, okay, let me back up. In 64 AD, there's a great fire breaks out in, in Rome. And apparently, Emperor Nero somehow caused this fire, or he, at least he was being blamed for this fire. And so what he does is to kind of take the responsibility or take the blame off him. He's like, I need to find somebody that I can pin this on. Maybe somebody that people already don't like and somebody that people already mistrust. I got it. I'll pin it on the Christians. This will work great. All right. And so he blames the Christians for this fire that destroys Rome. And Tacitus is writing about it, and he says, uh, hence to suppress the rumor, um, he, uh, Emperor Nero, falsely charged with the guilt and punishment with the most exquisite tortures, the persons commonly called Christians, who are hated for their enormities. Christus, the founder of that name, was put to death as a criminal by Pontius Pilate. And so, interestingly, as an aside, this is one of the extra-biblical uh, accounts of Jesus Christ. We don't find Jesus Christ just in our, the biblical Gospels, right? We can see through other people, Josephus and Tacitus and some other people, that there really was a guy named Jesus that really did walk around doing pretty crazy things in the, the first century. So, interesting. Here he is. Christus, the founder of that name, was put to death as a criminal by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea in the region of Tiberias. But the pernicious superstition, repressed for a time, broke out again not only throughout Judea, where the mischief originated, but through the city of Rome also, where all things horrible and disgraceful flow. Interesting. So, accordingly... First, three were seized who confessed that they were Christians. Next, on their information, a vast multitude were convicted, not so much on the charge of burning the city as of hating the human race. Interesting. And in their deaths, they were also made the subjects of sport, for they were covered with the hides of wild beasts and worried to death by dogs, or nailed to crosses, or set fire to, and when day declined, burned to serve for nocturnal nights. And this is the context that this letter is written into, right? That these Christians are, not only are they, they socially marginalized, they don't have a place where they belong, but they are literally hated by the government. They're being persecuted. And that is probably a difficult place to be. And so that is why the letter was written. A commentarian by the name of Scott McKnight said, you know, when kind of, so, you know, why was this letter written? He says, it was written to show how should we live in this social context 
of social exclusion and persecution. And so that is why Peter was writing this letter to, to, to tell the, the Christians, the Christ followers throughout Asia Minor that um, he was explaining how you're supposed to live and how you're supposed to deal with these difficult situations, right? Because there's probably this expectation that oh, I'm following Jesus. Shouldn't things get a little bit better? And unfortunately, that is not the case, right? And we find that in this context, in, in the first century, things were getting more and more difficult for these Christians. And so he would, he's asking questions, you know, the, or the, the people, the original recipients are asking questions. What are we supposed to do in this time? You know, are we supposed to escape maybe to a more sheltered world? Or maybe we should just withdraw from society and try to, you know, stay kind of quiet, right? Or maybe we should turn a cold shoulder to the world. Or maybe we should stand on street corners and preach judgment until these people repent. Is that what we should do? And so Peter is writing to these people in response to, to these kinds of questions. Oh. And so we see here that this letter doesn't just say, all right, do these things now, but it is a letter of encouragement, right, to help them to, to live rightly in, in the midst of this suffering. And so chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, I'm just going to read that here. It says, Dear friends... I urge you as foreigners and exiles, here we have it again, just like uh, repeated from chapter 1, foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires. Live such godly lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good works, good deeds, and glorify God on the day he visits us. So this is part of Paul's response. No, you're not supposed to preach judgment. No, you're, you're not supposed to kind of run away into the desert to stay safe. You know, you're, you're supposed to stay there to endure this suffering and to live such godly lives that people, that these pagans who don't believe in God, that do not believe in Jesus, they could see your good deeds and can glorify God on the day he visits us. That is how you're supposed to endure this suffering. And we also, Peter says, that we endure suffering because of Christ's example. You know, Peter talks about, you know, what does it matter if you suffer because you did something bad? But if you suffer because you didn't, if you suffer unjustly, that's awesome because you were following in the footsteps of Jesus, right? And Jesus was crucified and, and he was nailed to a cross. He was, was murdered completely unjustly. He was perfect in everything that he did. And yet he endured that suffering. He endured that suffering for you. And so now, though for a little while you have to endure suffering, you are glorifying God by enduring unjust suffering. That's really good. I bet they were like, hmm, really? <laughs> Maybe we could fight. Maybe send an army or something. But no, we endure unjust suffering. And it was also written to encourage these readers, the original recipients, to hold on to hope. That, to remember, this is not the end of the story. Jesus is coming back. You're not going to be here forever. And in uh, chapter 1, 3, and 4, early on, it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy... 
He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. And yeah, you got, you know what? You're enduring some really difficult stuff. This stuff, this is not easy. I, I'm with you, but I want to encourage you guys. Encourage you Asia Minor Christians to hold on because this isn't the end of the story. You know, your, your ultimate hope is heaven. And Jesus is, is up there. He's waiting for you. And he's not abandoned you. You are not alone here in this place. You have a hope. And that hope is Jesus Christ. And in 1 Peter 4... I guess I didn't put this one up there. I'm just going to read it. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. It says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening. And I think it's interesting that he talks about this fiery ordeal. Was Peter talking about this fire in Rome? I, I think it would be really interesting if he, if he was, but we... Th- Probably most of the commentarians think that this was written before that, but maybe he's kind of looking forward to, hey, things are going to be difficult, and there's going to be some fiery ordeals that are coming down the line. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. So don't focus all of your attention on the the here and now and how difficult and terrible things are being. You can endure the suffering with an eye on your eternal hope that God is coming back and it is going to be glorious. And and this idea that, that Peter was written to help them to live well in the community of believers. And this, I just, I think this is so important. In, uh, I'm just going to go through a bunch of verses here. 3 8 it says, Finally, all of you be like minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. He's talking about in the context of your Christian community, love one another. And certainly that extends um, to you know, the, the, the pagan society that they're in. But he's saying, you guys are a family. You are a community. Be like-minded. Be sympathetic and love one another. And he also says in 4.8, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. All right? Love each other. Love one another within your community. And just a couple of verses later, he says, Use whatever, you, whatever gift you have received to serve others. You guys are a community of believers. You should serve one another. And then, a couple of chapters earlier, Show proper respect for everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So good. Love the family of believers. Fear God and honor the emperor. The emperor, by the way, was Nero. So that is, that is kind, of, kind of the big overview of when it was written, why it was written, who it was written to. But how do we take this with us today? And I think a huge takeaway for us as we read through the, the letter of 1 Peter is that we belong to the family of God. 
In our circumstances, whether they be social or economic or physical, do not determine our hope. Right? Our circumstances do not mean that we have been forgotten. does not mean that we are unimportant. It does not mean that God doesn't care. Because we know the truth, that he is with us. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, God, you are with me. And so our exterior circumstances don't reveal how God feels about us. It doesn't, in, because, in, because we are in this family, we can encourage one another. When one person is feeling down, is, is struggling, one person is, is hurting, right? We are here. God has sent us to be the hands and the feet and the love and the hugs of God in this world today. In this family, we are are a community, and we are a fellowship, right? And so I think a huge takeaway from First Peter is that we belong to this family. We find our identity not in our social situation, not in our physical situation, but we find our identity as sons and daughters of the living God. And I just thought this was an interesting quote from Scott McKnight, the commentarian. He says, While they are socially strange and foreign in Asia Minor, while they are excluded, powerless, and homeless in the Roman Empire, in God's family they are citizens, they are included, they are royalty, and they are at home as God's people. And... I think this is the last verse for the day, but this is this amazing verse that comes straight out of 1 Peter. Remember that in chapter 1 and chapter 2, he talks about them being foreigners. He talks about them being exiles. But in chapter 2, 9, he says, but you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Wow. You who once were not a people, you are now a chosen people. You are my people. You are my sons. You are my daughters. You are a royal priesthood. You have full access to God the Father. You have full access to Jesus Christ, the Son, and you have full access to the Holy Spirit. And so what does this mean to us? It means that no matter what we're going through, what our outside circumstances are, we are part of God's family. And we can stand secure in this identity as sons and daughters of God. And we know the end of the story. We can hold on to hope regardless of what we are going through, what trials and tribulations and sufferings or persecutions that we are enduring. We know that in the end, God wins. God defeats death. God defeats sin. And we, because of the the cross, because of Jesus Christ, get to spend eternity with God in peace and in pleasure. And then Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, that our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Amen. So let's pray. Father God, we rejoice in, in our identity as your sons and your daughters. 
God, even in the the midst of suffering, even in the midst of trial and, and difficulty, we rejoice. And we lift up our eyes to our eternal hope. That we know that you win. We know that sin and death will be defeated. And that we will live in eternity in glory with you. And so I pray, God, that as as we remember the hope of glory, that you would help us to live well in this culture, in this time. God, help us to be holy and righteous. Help us to be lights to those who don't believe you. Help our light and our salt to, to reveal you to everyone that we encounter. God, we thank you that you've chosen us, that you've called us to be your people. And we choose to follow you. We thank you for your great hope.